Thank you very much. Our first step towards supporting other people or working with other people or walking in the shoes of other people is to talk to them. And if we don't talk to people and turn around and get to know them, we will never be able to do that. We're going to look at a story today that is very, very familiar to us. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, this is embedded in our culture. We have hospitals named after the Good Samaritan. We might call people Good Samaritans if they do a good deed. But actually, what we're going to do is look at the real depth of the story today. So obviously, the first thing you do when you're gonna, you know you're going to talk on a particular subject is you go to Google. And you, uh, I'm a reader, I love reading, so that's how I do my research. I'm not a very techie person, so I went on to Google to look for books about the Good Samaritan. Unfortunately, though, there were just hundreds of books for children. There weren't many books that I could use that were, that were suitable for adults within this story. So I decided to go to the experts, and it illuminate. I found Christine. Hey, huzzah! <laughs> um, <laughs> huzzah is another hooray, okay? So huzzah. Um, and she managed to find me some really good books, a really old book, but also some more modern books about the Good Samaritan. Now, we know in the Good Samaritan that actually the focus is often on the teacher of the law, the expert, and Jesus' response. But we're going to look at it slightly differently today. Let's read the passage together. This is taken from Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This is the context. Teacher... He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when, when he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, who's another religious person, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, context here, the Samaritans were hated. They were loathed by the Jews. A Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he took the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, 
I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, and you notice you can't even say the word Samaritan here, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, really familiar story. We know it very, very well. But uh, let's give some context to the story. We're not talking about a road like the A49 here. They were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a distance of about 15 miles. But as I say, it's not the A49. It was a rugged, mountainous road. And it was called the Way of Blood. So Jesus probably specifically chose this road as an example in his story because actually people would have known this is a dangerous, treacherous road. I know people get beaten up and battered on this road. Would you travel on this road? Maybe only if you had to. It was the route from Jerusalem to Jericho. I live in Church Stretton, so it would be like walking from Church Stretton to here. But that's not a dangerous thing to do. This is a dangerous route you were likely to get beaten up and robbed. So both the priest and the Levite walked by on the other side. There could be a number of reasons for this. It could be that they didn't want to get dirty. It could be they just couldn't be bothered. It could be they were in a real rush, and actually they looked at this guy and thought, well, he's almost dead anyway, it won't be long, I've got to get home. But what did the Samaritan do? He saw him. That's the first thing we're told. He saw him. When we see people and we really get to know them, that's when we can support people. He identified a need and he made a decision to help. He could have seen him and walked by. But no, he saw him, he really saw him, and identified a need. He ignored the otherness. Now, what do I mean by otherness? It's the blood. There was probably quite a lot of dirt. There would have been flies around this half-beaten, battered man. They probably used weapons when they tried to kill him. They would have used rocks, bars, who knows? But this man would have looked very different to a Samaritan on a journey. He took pity on him. And it's really interesting, um, the, mess- the word that Joe bought about that reckless nut love and the, the, the meaning of reckless. It's an agape love. Now, by the word agape, I mean a love that you is just unconditional There is no deal involved. I'm not asking for anything back if I express an agape love. We have been shown agape love by God through Jesus. And this is what the Samaritan is showing. He is showing a compassionate, reckless, extravagant love for this man that is battered on the side of the road. It says that he had pity on him. Now, pity is really short. Pity can be, oh, that's sad. But this isn't what we're talking about here. This isn't a twee little comment and, oh, off I go 
pat him on the head and go, oh, that's sad, I'm sorry. Actually, he has compassion. Compassion comes from the word compati, which is Latin, and it means to suffer with. If we're going to walk in the shoes of others, we have to suffer with them. We don't pat them on the head in a very patronizing way and go, oh, I'm sorry for you. And so having made the decision to, to decide to support this man, he went to him. He moved from his side of the road to the side of the road of the battered, half-dead, naked, covered in blood, and who's know what el- who knows what else, man. I wonder if I would do that, if I saw that. I want to tell you a story from when I was a child. I had two, my two best friends were brothers called Neil and Kevin. And uh, we skateboarded quite a lot. I lived in London, so that we lived at the bo- there was a really busy road at the top of our road. And one day, we decided to cover Neil in fake blood. And he lay on the side of the road as though he'd fallen off his skateboards. Now, Kevin and I hid behind somebody's fence and watched to see what would happen. It was a busy road and no cars stopped. We, stood, we were probably there, I don't know, 10 minutes and no cars stopped. Then eventually, a car stopped to look at this battered boy on the side of a road with a skateboard. We put, popped out behind the fence and looked to see who had stopped And it was two very elderly ladies. And they got out of their car. They came over to see how Neil was. And uh, at that point, we jumped up, giggling, thinking it was absolutely hilarious, and ran off. The problem was, the ladies then got back in their car and couldn't start their car. So that is one of my childhood memories. Um, However, but actually, who stopped to help this battered man. It was the two little old ladies. It wasn't anyone else. Um, I don't know if you know uh, Halfords at Meal Brace. Um, I, I embarrassingly drove on a big rock and managed to get my car wedged on this massive rock just as you come out of Halfords. Um, they've placed a stone there so people don't drive on this bit. So I drove on this bit and managed to get... So there was just two wheels left on the road, and the other two were just wibbling around as we were banked on this rock. The children, the children were very embarrassed, I can say. So we stood there. I didn't have anything to move my car. You can't lift the car. And all these cars were going by. Obviously, I was inconveniencing quite a few people as well because we were perched on the side of the road. And then four teenagers in a Corsa or Ford Fiesta came by. And, I was, and you, know, you could see my kids going, oh, this is so embarrassing. And actually, it was the four teenagers in the Fiesta or Corsa who went, do you need a hand, love? Can we help you? And it was like, it's okay, the man from Halfords is helping But actually, who stopped to help us when I'd made a mistake driving? It was these unexpected people, the four teenagers on the side of the road. So the unexpected person to help here is the Samaritan. But if you notice, he went from his bit, he went to the man in need. Then what did he do? He bandaged his wounds. Now, I don't think the Samaritan would have been carrying a first aid kit he wouldn't have been a first responder, okay? So what does that mean? Where does he get his bandages from? I would imagine, therefore, he's having to tear up his own clothes 
or a, a coat or a cloth of some sort that he would have, and he's having to tear those up to bandage the wounds of this half-dead, battered, naked man. Now, this wouldn't have been a clean job. The guy was probably covered in gravel. You know what it's like if you fall over on a gravelly surface. This is not a tarmacadam road. This is a dusty, dirty track. He would have been filthy. He would have been petrified. And actually, at that point, the Samaritan is also putting himself in danger. He could have gone to help that man, and then the robbers come back and you know, have a double whammy that day. He shared his pain. That's what compassion is. So he was giving up, he was sacrificing some of his self for the man who he didn't even know on the side of the road. He provided A and E. He poured on oil and wine. Now, I don't think these things would have been a particularly cheap product to be carrying in your bag. He sacrificed his own resources for this man that's half dead, naked, on the side of the road that he doesn't know. He then used his own vehicle. He used his vehicle, which was a donkey, to take the man to an inn. Now, that meant that he couldn't ride on the donkey. It's probably going to be really, really hot. Um, It's going to be a long way because he would have traveled all day, but also he had to place the man on the donkey. It's going to be awkward with a half-dead man on the donkey, and he would have had to held him on so he didn't fall off and damage himself more and walk by the side of him, plus carrying his own bag. He then took him to the inn. Now, I really would have loved to have seen the receptionist's face. As he turned up with a half-dead, battered, bloody-covered man and a donkey, naked man, to his reception. I wonder if we did that at Travel Lodge at Millbrace, what the response would be. I am not sure, and there are other hotels available, I am not sure that the receptionist would say, welcome, come in, we welcome you to our establishment. I've got a feeling it might be another response. However, for some reason, this guy can actually take him into the inn. Did he know him? Had he done this before? We don't know. But he was able to get a room in the inn for this man. So he had to pay two silver coins. Now, the coins in those days would have been denarii, and two silver coins would have been two days' pay. So think about your income in whatever form that might look like. Two days of your income would go on looking after and paying for the hotel accommodation of a half-dead, beaten, naked man that you don't know. He sacrificially used his own resources. He used his energy. And no doubt, as he was walking along with the half-dead, beaten, bloody-covered man, he's thinking... What do I do next? He's planning the next move. He's not being reactive. He's actually planning, what can I do next? And then while he's at the hotel, at the inn, he takes care of him. He looks after him. There's this phrase that sometimes we use in a church setting called meeting people where they're at. It means you go to that person and you look after them where they are, not where you are. You move from this place to their place and you walk in their shoes. And we'll talk about shoes 
a little bit later. And he then shared responsibility. He left the next morning, and he gave the responsibility of looking after this man to the innkeeper. Again, I'm not sure if Travel Lodge would actually help us in that situation. But we sometimes have to share responsibility. The interesting thing is, he then says to the innkeeper, please look after him, and I will, and the grammatical sense of this is, I promise to return and recompense you. I will give you back all the money that you spend on looking after this guy. If you think, this, there's not a contract here, there's not an un, it's an unending agreement. So the innkeeper could go, yeah, great, I'm going to keep this guy here for 12 days, 15 days, how many denarii is that going to be? The Samaritan is at risk of being ripped off here, but he still says, I will pay back whatever is needed to get this man back to full health. Now, we don't know if that man, and I refer back to Jim's story, actually, we don't know if he ever met the recovered man again. Jesus doesn't tell us in the story. And sometimes we don't know the result of our actions. Did he come back when the guy was still there? We don't know. Or did, he, did the guy go fully, fully back to health and then the Samaritan came back to pay the innkeeper back. We don't know. So that's the story, and that's the focus and the behavior of the Samaritan. What does this look like today? How do we and how can we show this reckless, extravagant, agape love? I wonder if any of you noticed anything different when you came in through the doors today. Anybody? Okay, I'll give you a clue. Shoes. Did anybody notice anything about shoes? Okay, when you leave today, I want you to go and look at the little notice boards, the little tiny clip frame notice boards. They've all been replaced. They don't have the normal notices in. I came in and snuck a new picture on there, and it's got some shoes on it. When we're working with people, when we are, um, and I'm not talking corporately here, Okay, I'm talking as us, as individuals, we walk in the shoes of others. We need to make a decision whether we're going to help them or be with them and walk alongside them and walk with them in their own suffering. Some of you may know we, we live in the hills in Church Stratton. We've got a range of animals. Um, unfortunately, we lost a guinea pig yesterday. So that was a little bit sad, but it's okay. We've got two more. Um, but we do have ducks. And uh, we've got two ducks. And I wonder if anyone can guess the names of these two ducks. Quack, that's a good guess, but it's not quite right. Donald, no. The first duck, we're very original in our names in our house, is called Duck. And the second duck is called Duck Duck. Okay? So the first duck came along. And she's the original duck. They're little khaki things, so they're very domesticated. Um, they, come up to, you know, they come up to your feet and want food and stuff like that. The first duck, uh, she's the longest living with us because we had to buy the second duck in an emergency because we had a visitor from the fox. So we got the second duck, and uh, the first duck was her teacher because when the second duck came, she couldn't swim. 
And so the first duck took a whole week showing her how to live where we live, showing her where the food is, showing her where the safe place is so she's not attacked by the fox. Now, interestingly, a few weeks ago, we had the visit from some wild ducks. Now, our domesticated ducks found this very disturbing. (laughs) Suddenly, they had really thick necks as their feathers rose up. They would be flapping their wings constantly. And despite these wild ducks being ducks, our ducks would not welcome them into our garden. And actually, in the end, they chased them away because they were different. They had different behaviours, they wore different feathers, and they looked very, very different. How often do we look at somebody and make a judgment? Um, I haven't worn a wedding ring for many, many, many years. I took it off about two years after I got married, and it was really interesting when, some of you may know that um, my husband John died about just over 10 years ago. It was really interesting when people first realised that I was a lone parent, They would look at me and make a judgment. Oh, her marriage failed. Oh, she'd made poor decisions. Oh, maybe there's two fathers involved. And so there would be a judgment there of why I had become a lone parent. But as soon as I said, well, actually, my husband's died, they would be completely different with me. How often do we make a judgment and look at people and put our view on them? no matter what their situation. Um, A book that has... Well, two books last year really impacted me, um, and this was one of them. This is called Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine. It's a novel. I don't know if anyone's read it. Coming up to the summer, if you're looking for a good summer novel, really, really, really good. Really enjoyed it. Um, And I'm going to read a section from the book, and I wonder if you can think of people like this. From Monday to Friday, I come in at 8.30, take an hour for lunch. I used to bring in my own sandwiches, but the food at home always went off before I could use it up. So now I get something from the high street. I always finish with a trip to Marks and Spencer's on a Friday, which rounds off the week nicely. I sit in the staff room with my sandwich and I read the newspaper from cover to cover. And then I do the crosswords. I take the Daily Telegraph, not because I like it particularly, but because it has the best cryptic crossword don't really talk to anyone. By the time I've eaten my meal deal, read the paper and finished both the crosswords, the hour is almost up. I go back to my desk and work till 5.30. The bus home takes about half an hour. When I get home after I've washed up and eaten my, I've eaten my dinner and washed up, I read a book or sometimes watch the television if there's a program the Telegraph has recommended that day. I usually, well, always, talk to mummy on a Wednesday evening for 15 minutes or so go to bed around 10, read for half an hour, and then put the light out. Don't have any trouble sleeping, as a rule. That sounds like a normal person. That sounds like the type of people we might work with, we might engage with, we might meet on the school playground, we might meet in our clubs and social events that we go to. That's her weekdays. This is Eleanor's weekend. On Fridays, I don't get the bus straight home after work, but instead I go to the Tesco Metro, round the corner from the office and buy a margarita pizza, some Chianti, and two big bottles of Glenn's vodka. When I get home, I eat the pizza and I drink the wine. I have some vodka afterwards. I don't really need much on a Friday, just a few big swigs. I usually wake up on the sofa around 3 a.m. and I stumble off to bed. 
I drink the rest of the vodka over the weekend, spread it throughout both days so that I'm neither drunk nor sober. Monday takes a long time to come round. When we get to know people, we know what their weekends are like. We know that their, that their work face is one, but the real them is another. But we've got to go to their point. We can't expect them to come to us. How many people do we work with or we engage with or we meet on an everyday that we think their life looks like one thing, but actually their weekend is very, very different? We need to be the ones to take the time to move from this side to the other side to get to know them. Sometimes that's sacrificial. I wonder if you, this week, if you've looked at the television uh, program, you will know that this week is the launch of probably the biggest TV program that's going to be this summer. Anyone know what it is? Love Island, yes. It starts this week. And I'm talking sacrifice here, okay? So, personally, I don't, love, I don't like Love Island. I prefer Danish... Um, Nordic noir thrillers with a bit of murder and gruesome stuff going on, but in a beautiful countryside. Love Island for me just doesn't do it, but my daughter Hope loves it. Okay, so actually for me, I watch it so that I can talk to Hope about it and I can get to know what she's thinking. And culturally, and I think Graham next week is going to talk about culture, actually culturally what her age group is talking about. And sometimes we need to do things that make us feel uncomfortable to actually walk in somebody else's shoes. I know that's a really silly example, but actually, if I want to work with somebody, if I want to support somebody, if I want to go from this point to the other side, I have to meet them and get to know everything about them, not just on my terms. So I need uh, some volunteers. Who's willing to volunteer? Hands up. Well done, Phil. Christine. <laughs> okay. I have some uh, shoes in here. I'd like to choose some shoes. There you go. You've got all styles. Anybody else want to come and volunteer? It's only a shoe activity. Nothing awful. Choose a pair of shoes. You have those, put that pair there. Okay, I've raided my kids' cupboard. Okay, choose a pair of shoes. Oh, Phil. Martin's got some shoes. Right, hold your shoes up. <laughs> Phil might regret his decision. Okay, Martin, you've chosen um, a pair of Diddy's trainers. Hello. They are. Are they Diddy's trainers? Yeah. Um, why did you choose them? Oh, well, I like the outdoors. I like the smell of trainers particularly. <laughs> but not Diddy's particularly. But uh, no, Sorry. the thing is that I was a bit worried about not fitting into some of the others, so I'm looking for some big shoes. Okay. okay. So actually, Martin chose those shoes because he can relate to them. They are shoes that he can see and he understands. He loves the smell. He does running himself, and he's a fit, you know, he does fitness. They are very smelly. <laughs> So, so Martin chose those because actually he understands them. Right. Why did you choose those? Well, I, I, chose, the, I chose these because um, I believe that they're yours. And you told me that these shoes were the most comfortable shoes that you had ever had. 
and that like you wear them till they drop, so they're probably a bit riffy as well. But um, so these these shoes have seen life because they've walked in many places. So that's why I chose those. That's really interesting. Okay, and Phil. <laughs> You have checked. These are actually my shoes, and I've only ever worn them once, and I couldn't walk in them. So, why did you choose these shoes? Uh, because I didn't want to be boring. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, I thought they looked practical. Uh, I like running, they got a good drop here. So, um, be excellent in the hills. Yeah. yeah. Great, thank you. Now, I'd like you to actually put the shoes on, Phil. I need you to put the shoes on. Seriously, I want you to all put the shoes on. And I want you to walk up and down the front in those shoes. Okay. <laughs> you can walk however you want. <laughs> on the toes. Yeah, your choice was a good one. Okay, come on then, a bit of running, Martin. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Take them off and put them just where you want them. I'll leave the green ones. Thank you. Thank you very much. So how often do we choose to be with people that are like us, that we can understand? That, you know, like Martin said, he chose the trainers because he knows trainers. He likes trainers. How often do we choose with people that are like us. Phil chose the ladies' shoes. <laughs> Actually, he said they were quite comfortable in the toes, but really awkward at the back. When we're walking in somebody else's shoes, it is not necessarily going to be comfortable. These are interesting boots, because these originally were not my boots. I was given these boots by a lady, a friend called Karen, a, same name, but... Her foot is molded in this boot. I've got some red ones, which are the ones Christine was talking about, that actually you can't even feel they're on your feet because your feet mold to them. These shoes I'm wearing today, I mean, they are so molded, it feels like I've got no shoes on because I wear them so often. These boots, whenever I wear them, I can feel Karen still in there because my feet will never mold to the shape of these shoes because they were never originally mine. When we are walking with somebody, we have to remember that they are not our shoes. It is not our life. It is us walking with somebody in their life. And sometimes then we have to withdraw. It is not about us. It is about them. Another thing that in the Eleanor Oliphant book, um, comes that she talks about being fine. How often do we just accept what people say to us? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Listen, look at what Eleanor says. People don't like these facts, but I can't help that. If someone asks you how you are, you are meant to say fine. You are not meant to say that you cried yourself to sleep last night because you hadn't spoken to another person for two consecutive days. Fine is just what you say. We need to look beyond the fine. And that's how, when we get to know somebody, we can look beyond. And we can really see that person 
for who they are and really see what their needs are. We also have to get it in for the long haul. Sometimes we can walk with somebody for quite a short period of time and we can see the results. Sometimes we have to go go for it for the long haul. And when I mean the long haul, it might be forever. I want to give you some examples of the blessing as a family we have received for people who are willing to show us extravagant agape love at a time of real distress. As I mentioned, John died just over 10 years ago. And to give you some context, we tried to move to Bristol, so we hadn't been in this area for nearly two years. However, when he died, very unexpectedly, I was amazed because the mums from the children's school at Longdon provided us with six weeks of food. We hadn't seen them for nearly two years. They did, some of them didn't even know who we were, and they asked for nothing back. I don't even know who some of the mums were. And what happened was two particular mums, who I was not particularly close with, they weren't besties, they would come down every week. We were living south of Ludlow, so they would travel 40 minutes every week with a week load of food in plastic containers that we didn't need to return. There was no deal involved, and they would do the gardening with me. Now, I know they were not doing the gardening with me. They were coming to check that I was okay. That is what I call agape love. And now I, re- I rarely see those people. They, but they were willing to do it, and they were sacrificial for the long haul. There's also a couple in Bristol, and they have prayed for us every single day since the day John died over 10 years ago. Every single day. And every month they email and say, what do we pray for this month? What's happening with you this month? Every single day. That's what I call the long haul. And that's their tool. That's what they can use. So let's identify our tools. What can we use to help people and support people in their need? Can we use WhatsApp? Can we use technology? I've got um, an agreement with one person, um, apart from our children, who is allowed to ring me at any point. I've put a phone in my room, and that person is allowed to ring me at any point, 24 hours a day. And I've promised, as the Samaritan did, I will respond if you call me. Now, that's, that's, that's not something I do lightly. There is only one person who's allowed to do that because actually I want to be able to support that person if she wants me to. Um, another tool that somebody used, we mentioned the couple in Bristol that pray. When John first died, um, shortly afterwards, I took the children to Telford and we went to the Costa in Telford. Now, we rarely went to Telford, we rarely went to Costa, and there are not many families with the name of Noah, Hope, and Gabriel as their children. We went in for hot chocolates and coffee, and we sat down, and unbeknown to us, another lady came in. She had been praying for us because she had heard what had happened. She didn't know us. We didn't know her. I didn't know she was there. And then she heard us talking and realized we were the family she was praying for. That's agape love on God's behalf. 
and that's agape love for me. She was sacrificing her time for a family she didn't even know to pray for us, us using the tools she had. It was only afterwards when somebody else said, did you go to Telford Costa whenever? I said, yes, we were. How do you know that? And she said, because this person's been praying for you. And she was there and heard you talking. And then she was able to pray really strategically and had a picture of us in her head as she prayed. That's it for the long haul and using the tools that we've got. Now, I've brought a packet of biscuits here. I love biscuits. And to me, biscuits are one of the greatest tools that we have to be and share with other people. Now, these were actually given out free by Sainsbury's. There are other supermarkets, but these were free, okay? And they were only given out for one day. And the message on the side of this biscuit, so they're celebrating 150 years, is this, tea and talk. We want to help everyone enjoy being part of their community because we want everyone to live well. Please, take these tea, because you've got a free packet of tea as well, and biscuits home, and enjoy a cuppa with a friend or neighbour on us. Some, wow, exactly. But I'm afraid it was only one Saturday they were doing it. Um, but they can be your tool. If you know somebody's in need, grab a packet of biscuits or a cake and go and be with that person. We're going to sing a song in a moment. And this is, for me, this is a really powerful song. But one of the lines in it is... I see a generation. And often we assume that it's another generation that might be doing this work. That generation is us all together. And if the, ba- if the musicians want to come up now, the last part of the, the song is, open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. That's agape, reckless extravagant love. We are asking God to help us love others as he has loved us. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Why don't we stand and let's sing. Mm -hmm.